Lord, you know the people that are in having such bad weeks. Lord, they didn't even hear the question yet. So God, I'm asking, Lord, would you meet us where we are? Lord, would you calm our hearts where they need calmed? Lord, I know my needs calmed. Lord, for those of us that are just going through turmoil, through just stuff that's hard to deal with, God, Lord, would you, would you just meet every one of us right where we are, God? Would you speak into the things that are going on in our hearts, Lord? Father, having talked today to at least one other person that I know just, is, just didn't even make it, Lord, it was just such a bad week, Lord, I'm asking, Father, even just a bad day, God, would you reach in, touch God, would you heal those areas, Lord, that we need healing in, God? Lord, would you show us the direction that you want us to go, Holy Spirit, maybe even in spite of those around us not walking in the Spirit? Lord, would you just help us? Would you calm our hearts? Would you prepare the soil of our hearts, God, for what you want to speak tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys... I'm calling the message tonight, if you want to flip over with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is where we're at. We are in chapter 7, and we're going to be starting in verse 11, which is where we left off last week, if you guys remember. And so here's the deal, you guys. We are looking at Ezra actually leaving Babylon and heading out. And by the end of tonight, you guys, we are still not going to see him leave quite yet. <laughs> This is like, it's going to be like three weeks before he finally leaves uh, in our time. It's going to be just days for him. But there's a lot of reasons behind that. And so as we have kind of have looked, you guys remember last week, we looked at the beginning of Ezra's trip and how, you know, we saw earlier in chapter one that Zerubbabel and Jehu had brought about how many people, you guys remember? A little under 50,000 people went along with them the first time. And we talked about the fact that that was an insignificant number compared to the amount of Jews that lived in Babylon at the time. And so we've talked about these things. We've talked about all this. Now, this is about 70 years after chapter one is where we're picking up. It's actually, I think, 74, 75 years total to be more exact. But it's, yeah, 70 plus years later. And here's Ezra gathering up people to cross the same 900 miles, the same four-month journey that had happened before. And so let's dig in and we'll keep looking at all of this. So here we go. Verse 11 in chapter seven says this. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Perfect peace and so forth. There we see it again and so forth and whatever. Verse 13, I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire Judah or to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And whereas you are carrying the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore... Be careful to buy with this money 
bulls, rams, lambs, and, and with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of God, the will of your God. Verse 19, also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God, before the God of Jerusalem. You guys, King Artaxerxes was basically right here laying out the red carpet for the Jews, wasn't he? He was like, pretty much, here's all the stuff that I'll give you. I'll give you so much. And it, I don't know if you guys noticed this. Do you see that I, I, I circled in my Bible, verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, that whereas, doesn't that sound very legal? It's like a legal document. That's what this was meant to be. This document that, they, that Ezra had in hand was basically, they could be like, this is what King Artaxerxes says, so you better listen, right? And so it has this very legal language in it. But this is King Artaxerxes laying out the red carpet for the Jews through Ezra. Isn't this an amazing turn of events? How, do you guys remember how all this started? Tatooine. Remember Tatooine? Good old Tatanai, right? He's like, hey! They're building stuff in there and they're not allowed to, right? And he sent a letter off and then he's like, they checked the, the past and they're like, yeah, they are allowed to. And oh, by the way, you're gonna help them. And he was like, dang it, <laughs> right? Old Tatooine. We're gonna need, read another turn of events for Tatooine tonight. So the fact is, you guys, here is this amazing turn of events for the Jews. Here's Ezra, this expert in the law of Moses, but I need us to see something here. He was an expert in the law of Moses, which is one of the big reasons that King Artaxerxes looked at him and said, hey, you know what you're doing. You know what you're talking about. And we talked last week, how did Ezra get to be a, an, an expert in the law of Moses? He pressed into God. Look at this legal document just to kind of give us an idea of how Artaxerxes was encouraging the Israelites and especially the Levites and the priest. He was tasking Ezra to see how things were going in Jerusalem. He was telling them like, you're gonna go over there basically as my envoy. You're gonna go over there and you're gonna check it out and tell me what's up. And on top of that, because you're an expert in the law, you're gonna make sure they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing according to your God. And you'll notice he says that over and over again, your God, your God, your God. This is not like some kings where you think, huh, are they gonna be in heaven someday? No, it seems pretty clear King Artaxerxes being a Persian, the Persians were kind of wide open to whoever. We have histories, uh, writings in history where they did sort of a similar thing. Another king did sort of a similar uh, thing where they told another group to go and set up a thing to Zeus. Go and just follow Zeus's rules. So it's not like King Artaxerxes was necessarily like, hey, I'm with Jehovah, I'm with Yahweh. But at the same time, do you understand and can you see how God was using King Artaxerxes for the good of the Jews? Stop for a second. Whether you like Joe Biden or not, doesn't matter. Whether you liked Donald Trump or not, doesn't matter. Do you see how God can use them for the good of the church or for the bad, depending on what he wants to do with that person? Do you get what I'm getting at? God is in control. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, you guys. The fact is, he was tasking Ezra to see, to make sure that God's law was being followed. He was also tasking Ezra to get the gold and the silver that was being offered freely to the temple in Jerusalem. And if you notice, it says, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying like, there better not be a couple, couple coins missing, yo. You better have this just down to the penny. It better be right, right? So there was, a, there was a responsibility given to Ezra. 
So Ezra was tasked with all that and all the free will offering of the temple. And Artaxerxes was very specific in what standard he was setting here. He was saying, I'm trusting you, Ezra, with everything that's being sent, but I'm telling you this, I want to make sure that what you do with some of that money, with at least a good chunk of that money, is get all the rams, the bulls, everything you need to make sacrifice on the altar for what? For him, right? For him. We're going to read later where it says, like, why should, why should the king and his sons We've, we've read this before, right? Why should the king and his son suffer? In other words, he was saying like, look, I might not believe in this God, but I trust that I want the God of that area on my side. Do you see what I'm saying? And so he was saying like, you better go and you better make these sacrifices. Make sure the sacrifices were made with the money that has been sent. So God would be on his side. He trusted Ezra enough to know that the money that was going to honor God could be entrusted to Ezra. You guys, Ezra gives us an example, I think of what our life should look like here on this earth doesn't he? How do we do our work as Christians as unto the Lord? We do our work as unto the Lord. You guys, Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You guys, we should live and work in a way that we are trusted. It's an important point. And I got to say something that always begins with small things, doesn't it? It always begins with small things. If you're here tonight and you're a supervisor or ever have been a supervisor, what are you looking for in your people? You're looking for the person that you show up and he's not just goofing off on Facebook. He's actually doing the job he's supposed to be on the computer, right? When you walk by the screen. You look for the person that's out actually shoveling and doing the things he's supposed to be doing instead of just standing there, right? Man, Pennsylvania um, Department of Transportation, it takes like 17 people to do the job of one man because you need at least 16 doing this with a shovel. Right? Yeah. You guys, I'm looking for the one that's shoveling. I'm looking for the one that's working. I'm looking for the one I can trust in the small things, and that's the person I'm probably going to look at for a bigger role. Amen? Isn't that the truth? You guys, we have to be faithful in the small things. We have to be doing our work as unto the Lord. We need to be trustworthy. We need to not be lazy. We need to be a be about our father's business. And I need you to hear this tonight. That's whether you're uh, flipping a burger, making a pizza, or whether you're managing multi-million dollar accounts. It doesn't really matter what your job is. What matters is, are you being faithful to do it well as unto the Lord? Verse 20 says this, And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribed limit. They could have as much salt as they wanted. Whatever is uh, commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done by the house or for the house of God, the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons. There it is, you guys. That's his main motivation. Why should there be wrath against me and my kids? I'm taking care of you, God. You better take care of me. 
Now, was his motivation 100% right? No, right? We know that God loves and God, God does good, but the reality is it'd be better if he realized that God, but I would rather have someone like that than someone that's just, just squarely against God. You get my point? We can always find where God is moving people forward, where God is like pulling and wooing people. So here's the deal. The king adds to the amount that was already being given to send. And he says, look, when you get there, the people across the river, who is that? Tatanai. <laughs> He's the governor from across the river. He's like, if you need more, call your old buddy Tatooine. He'll hook you up. With up to 100 talents of silver. Do you know what that is? Three and three quarter tons of silver. That's a lot of silver. 100 cores of wheat is 600 bushels of wheat. 100 baths of wine is 600 gallons of wine. 600 gallons of oil and salt without limit. You guys, this was extremely generous. Extremely generous. And like I said, verse 23 gives us the motivation behind all of this. Artaxerxes, along with all of the other Persian kings in, his, in line, wanted to placate and appease the gods of the areas that they had conquered. So his aim was to make sure that God would not bring wrath against him and his kingdom. And we know that's not really how God works, but I just want us to see that because of this guy and because even though his motivation was a little off, do you see how much this is blessing the Jews? Yeah. You guys, God can do anything he wants. Can we trust him? So, finally, we see this. Verse 24 says, Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim or servants of this house of God. In other words, he's saying, if you work in the church, if you work in the temple precinct, if that's your job, I'm not gonna charge you taxes. I'm not gonna put any tax, tribute, or custom on you. Why was he doing that? Because he was trying to get the Levites and the priests to leave Babylon and return to Jerusalem. Why? So that they can help the people of Judah follow God. That's, the, that's their job. And he says, look, I'm going to give you some incentive. If you go and you leave here and you leave what you have here where you're being taxed for it and you've got all this stuff going on, if you leave and go there, I'm not going to tax you when you get there. You're going to live tax-free. That's a pretty sweet deal, isn't it? You guys, I need us to understand something. The job of a pastor in the modern day is to be an under-shepherd. Who's the shepherd of the church? Jesus. Amen. In this concept. Here's God. He's the shepherd. He's, he's God. He's over the temple, but he, he's given this Levite tribe, right? Sons of Aaron, it, it, all these guys that are supposed to be doing this job. That's their role. That's what they did. And they, they were teaching the people what it looked like to live godly lives and to be holy, set apart. They were there to help them do the sacrifice and, and, and fulfill the law of God in Judah. That was their job. And that was what they were supposed to do. And Artaxerxes was trying to say, hey, Ezra, I've tasked you to go back and to make sure these people are following God. So take all of those type of people that you can with you. Take all those type of people that you can. Verse 25 says, and you, Ezra, 
according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. So Artaxerxes, you guys, was also, here's another thing he was motivated by and interested in. He was trying to make sure that Judah remained obedient to the Persians. He was trying to say, like, look, you do you, boo, with your God. You do that. Like, that's fine. You do that. We're going to help you. We're going to do what we can. We're going to bless you in whatever way we can. You go and you do that. And if you're following the law of your God and the law of the land, we're good. Like, I'm actually wanting you to self-govern yourself, so to speak, knowing that you're under me, right? That's what he was asking of, of Ezra. And so Ezra here is saying or showing you guys how much he's trusted. Think about this. That's pretty brave of a king, isn't it? It's pretty brave of a king in Persia to be like, I'm going to send you 900 miles away. And oh, by the way, I don't have cameras set up there. I have no internet, right? I can't FaceTime you to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. No, he's sending them 900 miles away and he's saying, look, I'm, at, I'm tasking you. I'm entrusting you to, to, to serve your God there to serve God, to serve him well, to teach those in the area that don't know God yet to serve God, to do the job that I'm tasking you with. And on top of that, you guys, I'm also asking you to raise up people, to set up a judicial system, to, to manage your people, even if it means putting people to death. It's pretty hardcore. Look, Rome didn't give Jerusalem that, or Israel that right, did they? No, Rome didn't. This is odd. This is different. He gave Ezra permissions that go far beyond. This is almost, to me, you guys, on par with the uh, Pharaoh, right, giving Joseph second in command. That's kind of what I sense here, in, so to speak. For, for the area of Jerusalem, he's telling Ezra, like, you're my, you're my right hand. You take care of it. You deal with it, and you do it well. So I want us to notice one other thing, though. Do you notice that they're supposed to do to serve God and also to not to like to do justice, but not just for Jerusalem, not just for Judah. What did he say? Across the river. Who's across the river? Tats and I. So Tats and I literally was like, opened up a can of worms and was like, poured them out all over himself. And he's like, what have I done? So now he goes from like trying to check in to find out if they were even allowed to build the temple to finding out, yes, and also you're going to help him build the temple to Ezra coming across and on his way across, by the way, he's going to stop and be like, and now I'm your boss too. How you like me now? And then he keeps walking. This is crazy. So you guys, here's old Tatooine now under basically under the people of Israel. I think to me, this is just kind of another way of God saying, come at me, bro. You know, Satan, you want to play? I'm going to show you what I can do. That's kind of what I sense out of this. So let's keep reading. Verse 27. It says, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. 
I, do you guys see? This is so beautiful, you guys. Ezra, first off, is obviously wrecked. He's wrecked by the fact that God has just poured out so much favor on him. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture, you guys. This, man, it, if this is the one thing that you hear tonight, which I hope it's not because there's some other things I really want to point out, but I, I just need us to hear and read 27 and 28 again because listen to the heart of this man who has been given so much power and authority and so much prestige. And what is the first thing he says? He says, blessed be the Lord God of our father who's, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. In other words, he's like, it ain't me. I'm not special. Who am I? Like, I'm just me. I'm just little old me. And like, this king has all this power and God is moving in his heart in this amazing way. Like, whoa, God, how cool are you? How awesome are you, God, that you're willing to do this and to do it in this king's heart that for all intents and purposes, what we're reading here is a total pagan. And yet God's moving through him to help and bless the people of Israel. God's just pouring out his favor. And he, then he doesn't even toot his own horn, does he? No, he doesn't. He gives glory where it's due. He's like, man, he's extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord, my God, was upon me. Man, you guys, we serve a sovereign and a good God. He can move, like I've already said, at any time on any leader's heart. If they do something good, listen, it's not because of their political affiliation that of course they did something good because they were, name your political party. It has nothing to do with that. Do you know why it was? Because God put it on their heart to do it. That's why. Because what does the word tell us about us? There's not one of us that are good, <laughs> right? And so I need us to hear that. Look, I'm not trying to get political. I'm just being honest. When I see these things, when I look and see a person that's genuinely like, whoa, because for all intents and purposes, every Jew would have looked at Artaxerxes and said, man, this guy's got his thumb on us. This guy's this, this guy's that. And yet here is Ezra coming at it with an honest heart and saying, man, look at what God is doing through this man. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, God, right? You guys, we give God all the praise. Chapter eight, let's keep going. We're gonna get through a lot of scripture tonight. It's 10 till, all right, let's keep going. Chapter eight, verse one says this. These are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, and of the sons of David, Hattush. And of the sons of Shechaniah, of his sons, of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him, excuse me, were 150 males. And of the sons of Pehath Moab, that guy's name, the sons of Zariah, and with him 200 males. Of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben Jazael, wait, Ben Jehaziel, and with him 300 males. And the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males. And of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the sons of Athaliah, uh, and with him 70 males. And of the sons of Sephatiah, Zebediah, the sons of Michael, and with him 80 males. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 males. 
and of the sons of Shelomith, Ben, Josephiah, and with him 160 males. Of the son of, of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 males. And of the son of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males. And of the last sons of Adonachim, who, uh, whose names are these? Eliphelet. <laughs> Eliphelet. Somebody got to name their kid Eliphelet. I like that. Eliphelet. Jael and Shemaiah. And with them 60 males. Also of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai and Zubah, Zabud. And with them 70 males. You guys, that's a big old long list. But here's the deal. That sounds like a lot of names, doesn't it? Okay. How many people went with Zerubbabel? Around 50,000 people. This list, you guys, that we just read is comprised of 1,514 males. 1,500 people. Or 1,500 men. With 18 family heads that we just read. 50,000 people went in the first time and that wasn't very many. 1,500 men. Now, what does that equal? That equals to around 4,000 to 5,000 people if we count the women and the children, right? That's the guess right? And so the fact is a lot of these people that we just named, if you guys were to go back to chapter two and read the original list, which is much, much longer, here's what you'd find. A lot of these people that we're reading here were descendants of the people that already went. So what are they saying? Hey, grandma's over there. Let's go see grandma, right? That's what they're saying. And that's assuming that the person was somewhat young, 30s-ish, right? Maybe 20s-ish when they went to to begin with. And so you got to understand that this number, not only is it super, super small, but as we read a lot of these names, a lot of these are the same families. And so what does that mean? And I need us to hear this, you guys. We have something that we get to control. And do you know what that is? Our legacy. We control our legacy to an extent. How do you control your legacy? Living the life you're living now because what you're living is showing your kids something. Mm-hmm. And that means that their kids or your kids are gonna show their kids something. Yeah. And we're only ever one generation away from changing your legacy and making it more towards God. And the sad shame of it is we're only one legacy away from going the opposite direction too, aren't we? Yeah. But man, you guys, if you're here tonight, here's the deal. Whether you have kids, whether you don't, I'll tell you one thing, you have family. People that you work with, What's your legacy? What does it look like? It breaks my heart that this family legacy that we see here is that there's plenty of other families that we don't know their names. Do you know why? Because of what we've talked about all this time through. What is Ezra about? The people that went, not the people that stayed. Not the people that were just too cowardly or too comfortable to move, to say, God, you're more important. This should have been an exodus like it was from Egypt, and yet it wasn't. It was this tiny, little, minuscule, maybe 5% of the entirety of the people going back. It's sad, you guys. It reminds me of the modern church, you guys, especially in America. Lots of churches, most of them very empty. Lots of churches, even the ones that are kind of full, sometimes don't even follow God's word anymore. They're just teaching whatever the heck they want, social gospel or whatever the newest trend is. Lots of churches that are preaching the word, 
but feel like that's the pastor's job to teach the word, and then we get to go home and live like hell the rest of the week. There's a lot of churches that do a lot of things, you guys. Let's not be that. I want us to be like this. And if it's just 1,500 of us, then let's do it. Because they made the 900-mile trip. They spent the four months and went across. And they got to show up and be a part of the book of Ezra. They have a legacy. And they were living in their family's legacy. Do you guys understand that? What is the legacy that you want for your lives? What is the legacy that you want for your kids, you guys? And I don't care what your kids are doing right now. Do you understand that there's something about this that God does speak into the hearts of the children, doesn't he? Raise your children the way they're supposed to go and they will return. Listen, I don't think that's an absolute promise because it's in the book of Proverbs, but I think it's a darn good, very solid truth that can definitely happen. Does that make sense? I think there's a reason it's in the book of Proverbs because it's something that was noticeable. It was something that generation after generation, that when Solomon or whoever wrote that particular proverb, I don't know off the top of my head, was like, you know what I notice? I notice if you raise your kids in the way of the Lord that they end up coming back to it a lot of times. I think it's a solid thing to hear. Parents, we need to hear that. What is your legacy? Young folks that aren't, getting, that aren't married yet, listen, maybe someday you won't be married. What's the legacy you're leaving now? How are you living your life? What things are you going to be able to tell your kids? You know what? Man, I was married and I, you know, I, I didn't have sex before marriage. And I didn't do these things and I, I followed God hard. And man, look at your, look at your dad. He's an amazing guy. Look at, your, look at your mom. She's an awesome woman. And we did this. Here's the coolest thing, you guys. We have the legacy of grace in our lives too, don't we? Because yeah. right. I can't say that to my kids. Just being honest. But do you know what the legacy that I have with my kids? Man, look at the screw-up that I was. <laughs> and look how God took me and changed my life. I mean it. That's a legacy. Right? I love that God is so faithful and gracious to us, you guys. So here is this group coming to join the first wave. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, it says this. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. (sighs) That's depressing. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, not Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leaders also for Jorib and Elnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Edo, the chief man at the place, uh, Cassiphiah. And I told them what they should say to Edo and, and his brethren, the Nethanim, at the place, Cassiphiah, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. And then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and brothers, 18 men, 18 Levites, you guys. And Hashabiah and with him, Josiah of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men and also of the Nethanim, who David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. All of them were designated by name. You guys, Ezra realizes, okay, we've got these 1,500 guys. We got this, you know, 4,000 person group that's standing here before me. 
I'm looking through, I'm kind of figuring out what's the genealogies, who are these people, and I'm realizing that we don't have one son of Levi. What was he tasked to do? (laughs) To go back and set up a judicial system. Who was that going to be under? The Levites, the religious leaders. You guys, he was tasked to go back and to make people know the commands of God. Who was tasked with knowing the commands of God in order to teach them? The Levites. Who did he gain in this whole calling out for people? Not one Levite. That is depressing. You guys, we've talked about the fact that, the, that Ezra's written to those that had the courage and desire to follow God, to, to walk into the calling that God had for them and not about those that chose comfort and stability while staying in Babylon. And, and just to kind of give us a, a clear picture, right? What does Babylon stand for in the New Testament? The world. I'm not trying to draw too tight of a thread there, but do you see how this can tie to us? We choose comfort, stability while staying in Babylon, while just hanging out in the world and being okay there. You know, God, I know you have that pesky call in my life, but I don't really want to hear it, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Sadly, you guys, I think we, well, we do see here that only a few Levites, even after they go out and call again, only a few went. But can I also say this? You realize that in the first the first group that went out, do you know how many Levites actually went with them the first time out of 50, almost 50,000 people? Do you know how many went? 733. That's almost 70 people per Levite. I think my math is right on that. Think about this. Here's 733 to be exact, 733 Levites that are back in Jerusalem right now at this point in history trying to help over 50,000 people. Why do I say that? You got to remember, a little under 50,000 came back. Do you remember what we said when they celebrated uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that there were those that came that were like living in Jerusalem that were left behind, like with Jeremiah and all them. And they're there and they're like, you know what? We're going to give up all our pagan gods and we're not going to do this anymore. And we're going to come back to the temple and do things right. So they had gained people. So now these Levites that are limited in number already are like, whoa, we had enough to do already. And now you're throwing more. Are you kidding me? And so here they are, filling this tall order. Ezra sends out leaders, says, hey, gather up some Levites. And after the search, 38 total Levites were assembled. 38 Levites were assembled. How many Levites were there? I don't know, but I guarantee it this. It was way more than that. It was way more than that. You guys... They chose the world. How pathetic, how sad. They chose to just be comfortable instead of actually engaging the call that God had in their lives. And listen, if there's one group of people in all the people of Israel that knew their calling, it was the Levites. It was your one and only job. Be a priest. That's what you do. If your relative is, is, is Aaron, you're in. Do it. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. 38. Listen, the Nethanim, this is not the Nephilim that we read about in the Old Old Testament, right? In the book of Exodus. This is not that group. It's the Nethanim. This was a group of people that David had, had kind of called upon to support 
the Levites. And if you guys, you can, for you note takers, this First Chronicles 9-2 is kind of the mention of that. But David had appointed these people to serve the Levites. Why? Well, because the Levites were busy, man, and they're bloody, and they've got blood everywhere, and they're doing their job day in, day out, day in, day out. And so he's like, hey, I'm assigning this group of people. They believe that most of them probably started out slaves, and then through time, they just, that, that was their family lineage. So they kind of grew into the role of like, no, this is what we do. We serve the Levites. And so their job was to kind of do the dirty work, like cleaning stuff, maybe doing laundry. I'm, I'm just being honest. That was kind of what most scholars believe their role was. And I need us to hear this. 38 Levites came, 220 Nethanim. People that started out slaves probably weren't super excited about the job they were given. And a whole crew of them came back. People that were given a God-given calling on their lives and only 38 went. This brings a total count of the men total that we're going to leave to 1,772. So like I said, around four to 5,000 total people with men, women, and children. And can I just say this, you guys? God is calling people to serve in every generation. Every person here has a calling on their life. I need you to hear that. Every person here is not called to go to a third world country and be a missionary. Every person here is not called to be a pastor. Every person here is not called to be on stage and sing worship, right? You don't want me singing worship. God help you all, right? Like, you get my point? Like, we're all called to something, but the reality is, is that, listen, I think many do not heed the call. Many people do not heed the call. Why? Because of fear, a lot of times. Fear of what? Fear of the unknown? Fear of their inability? Right? Fear of what somebody might say. And I'm not acting like I'm up here and being like, you guys, I am just in this ivory tower where I was like super obedient to the call as soon as it came. No, you guys. When God called me, I was, I was singing worship in Calvary Chapel, Boise. And I really clearly in my own heart of hearts heard God say, I want you to be a pastor. And my immediate response was like, what are you talking about? I'm an idiot, God. You know me. Oh my God, no way. And so I just went back to singing and the whole time I'm just sitting here and I'm chewing on this thing that I very clearly heard the Lord say. And then this guy comes out on stage named Pancho Juarez and he is a lunatic. This little kind of short, heavier set Mexican guy and he's running across the stage and he's like, ah, because he's talking about how he got saved. You know how he got saved? He was high on cocaine. And he went up front because his girlfriend was up there. And he said he raised up his hand and they grabbed his hand and he was like, oh, don't touch me. Because he was so high, he didn't know what to do with himself. And it was the next morning that he woke up and he was like, was that real God? And that was the first time he heard God clearly say, yes, it was. And so then God got a hold of his heart and God began to change his heart. And then God said to me during that testimony, if I can use him, I can use you. We all have a calling, you guys. And I'm not acting like it's not hard. And I'm not acting like there might not be fear there. But I need to clear some things up. Listen, the unknown is exactly what you live in every moment of every day. Do you know why? It's unknown if God's going to give you your next breath. It's unknown that when you go to sleep tonight, if you're going to wake up in the morning, are you encouraged? Right? I mean, really, honestly, we act like, oh no, God, you might be sending me into something unknown. Listen, moment by moment of our lives is unknown. We don't know the future. Why why would that hold us back? Inability? Give me a break. None of us are able. It's only Christ in us that enables us to do things that we do. 
right? I mean, let's be real. Our fear is unfounded. It doesn't mean it's not real. I'm just saying it's unfounded. Hear me on that. Another reason people don't heed the call in their lives is because of discomfort. And listen, following God's call is rarely comfortable. I would say, I don't know that it ever is. Right? I don't think Jim Elliott thought he was very comfortable when he was getting speared to death. I wonder how his wife felt, Elizabeth, when she walked back into the same tribe, thinking, maybe I'm going to die today. And that's a really extreme example, but let's get a lot closer to home here. I might have a radical change of life. Like, I might be called to leave the house and my hot tub that I really, really liked in Idaho to move to New Hampshire. I might have my parents call me idiots because I'm turning down a six-figure job to come and get paid nothing, (laughs) right? I mean, you guys, do you understand, like, the reality of our situation? Yes, following God is radical. There's no doubt about it, you guys. Why? Because it doesn't click with the world around us, does it? We may lose friends. We may lose people in our lives that look at that and say, man, you're a freak. What is your deal? And I say, yes, yes, I am a freak. I'm a freak for Jesus, and I want you to be too. What about the discomfort of a living under a microscope? That's a discomforting place, isn't it? If you start telling people, if you quit your job because you really strongly, I'm not saying you have to. I'm saying if you feel God's telling you, quit your job and do this, I promise you, you're under a microscope. Everyone is watching your every move. My parents watched us for months and they were like, how you doing up there? How you doing? You doubled your mortgage. You, you'd pay double in rent up here than you'd paid for your mortgage for your acre and your house in Idaho, you idiot. What have you done? How are you treating your family so poorly? What are you doing? And my dad would say all these things. And you know what the blessing was? Here was the testimony at the end of it. Whenever I went home and my grandpa died and my dad was crying and he said, I don't understand why God keeps doing good for you. I don't get it. I don't understand how you can literally do the dumbest things possible and come out smelling like a rose. And I had to say to him, I do dumb things because I feel like God's calling me to and they're not dumb because he told me to do it. And he takes care of me, dad. That's it, man. That's it. And I love that you are called to drive a forklift, but don't, like, please stop judging me. Do you know what I mean? Here's the deal, you guys, and this is something I want to tell you. If God is calling you to something, obey. Obey. It's a good life lesson for all of us. Obedience, you guys, is always the best choice. Parents say amen. Right? And it doesn't matter how old your kids are. (laughs) Right? But I got to clear this up. Every parent here is like, amen. Yeah, I want my kids to hear me. I want my kids to listen to me. I want them to grow and learn to become good, productive adults. But the reality is, do you realize that, guys, we're God's kids, and he's trying to grow us up into what? Good, productive, spiritual adults. That comes through obedience. And man, so often, you guys, we sit and argue with him instead, like a little petulant teenager stomping our feet, don't we? I do. Verse 21 says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. 
For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So you guys, Ezra proclaims a fast as they gathered together at the beginning of their journey. And I need us to hear this. He had, a very, he had very specific reasons for this fast, didn't he? Why? Well, we read it here in verse 21. To humble themselves before God. To humble themselves. To seek the right way for them to proceed. And finally, for protection for the trip. And I want to spend the rest of tonight, you guys, just kind of looking at fasting. Some, some people in our church, honestly, have come to me and talked to me about like this idea of fasting and they're kind of freaked out by it. And some people are like, oh, I don't fast because I got diabetes or I don't fast because... I... And I think that it's a misunderstanding of fasting, right? And I want to kind of just dig through and look like, why do we fast? What is the point of fasting and what is the deal about it? Fasting, you guys, is a spiritual discipline that I believe is not very well understood by some people. Some people are really afraid of it right? They're like, oh, that's weird, and I don't want to do it. Some people have this really bad idea that when you fast, you're twisting God's arm, and he's going to do what you want. That's not fasting. That's not the point. Some people don't do it because they have medical issues like diabetes. And I want to stop for a few minutes here and look at this wonderful privilege, you guys, that every believer has to fast. I want to look at what fasting really is, why it's good to do, and how to do it. Ready? Here's what fasting is. Fasting is denying your flesh something it wants or needs. Fasting is denying your flesh something it wants or needs. How does fasting really work? Fasting doesn't work if you're 95 years old and you don't even have a video game system and you fast from video games. You're not fasting from anything. You get it? It's got to be something that's of value to you. That's why most people pick food. Why? Because we need it to live. You can't go forever without food. You can go quite a while, but you can't go forever without food. You will die, right? And so a lot of people pick food, but you don't, it's not just food. And we're going to look at that. The Puritan, the Puritan author, you guys, William Secker, that we have a quote here that I, just, I really came across that I love. It said this, by fasting, the body learns to obey the soul. By praying, the soul learns to command the body. By fasting, the body learns to obey the soul. And by praying, the soul learns to command the body. You guys, so many people choose to fast from food for a period of time. Why? Here's why. How often do we typically eat? Three times a day, don't we? We eat three times a day. If you're like me, I have a little frozen yogurt bar at night. So there's four <laughs> for me right? But we, we have a certain rhythm in our eating. And so guess what? When you're fasting from food, during that time that you would eat, you seek God. You seek God. You spend that time in prayer. You spend that time in the word instead. And you chew on his word and you let that feed you. When your belly growls, you seek God. When you start to get a little hangry, you seek God. That's the point of fasting. Submitting to God and saying, God, I'm humbling myself before you. Lord, you know this body, you created it. You know better than me how long I can go without food. But I'm giving this to you 
And I'm saying in this time, when I have that half an hour that I would normally spend eating, I'm going to do that. I read another quote that I didn't put in here, but it talked about this idea that if we even give God the time that it takes to prepare food, do you realize that that's like a good chunk of your day? If you make homemade meals at home, that's a good chunk of a person's day. Just prepping a meal, getting it ready, sitting down to eat, cleaning up the dishes, putting the dishes away, and then the meal's over, that's like a solid hour. It's a long time, you guys. So this idea of fasting is to teach your body, to say like, God, I'm yours and I'm submitting my life to you and I wanna humble myself before you. And the reality is, you guys, we have plenty of Old and New Testament examples of fasting from food. Acts 13, two, it said they fasted. This is when Paul and Barnabas were set aside for ministry. It said they prayed and fasted about what the Lord wanted to do. And that's when the Holy Spirit said, hey, set aside Paul and Barnabas to the ministry that I have for them. Second Samuel 1, 12 that was when David and his people were mourning for the death of Saul and Jonathan. So they fasted to the Lord. Nehemiah 1.4. He hears back about the state of things, the state of the wall, the state of the people. And so he just fasts because he's like, oh, I'm so heartbroken over this. God, would you change that? Would you give me wisdom? And guess what came out of that, you guys? Nehemiah's called to go, <laughs> right? Luke 4, 2 through 4, you guys know this one the 40-day fast of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry time. We also see that people are supposed to call to fast from other things. If you're a married couple, sometimes you can fast from sex as a way to hear from God, right? That's in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, but it says very clearly, don't do it for too long. And every man said, alleluia, <laughs> right? That embarrassed you. <laughs> My wife was like, oh, Lord. No, but for real, right? There's reasons to do that. Why? Maybe you have a disagreement that you just cannot come to an agreement on. And, and you're like, man, Lord, I don't know what to do with this situation, with this, this amount of money that we have. Or Lord, this, this situation with our car that we need to fix. I mean, it could be anything. It could be something major. Like your kid is just going off the rails. And you're like, we are going to fast. We're just going to fast from food and fast from sex for a little bit. And just spend that time at night in prayer and then go to sleep. And we're going to spend that time during food to just, during meals, to just spend time seeking Lord. It, there's no prescription for what it's for. Do you get it? It's for whatever you feel like you want to hear from the Lord on a deeper level for. That's the point. But it's not just food, you guys. I am diabetic. I'm diabetic. I don't fast for very long stretches of time. You don't want to see that. I'll be like, oh, I'm pass out. <laughs> right? It's not good but I do fast. It's, do you understand? It, there, there's an intimacy. There's a beauty there that you will never understand until you fast. It doesn't make you super spiritual and amazing. It just means that you have something with God that a person that's never fasted doesn't understand. That's it. It doesn't make you better. I need you to hear that. Why is fasting good, you guys? It focuses your whole being on God. The fact is, your needs and very breath is a gift of God. It teaches you spiritual discipline. Your body, you guys, is not in control of you. Your body does not control you. It doesn't feel that way whenever it's growling and saying, feed me, right? Was a little shop of horrors, feed me, see more, right? 
right? Like, that's how my stomach feels sometimes. Like, roar, just growling and yelling at me and telling me, right? And you feel disgusting and you feel horrible and you're just like, oh, Lord, I feel horrible, but I'm just gonna give this time to you anyway, right? You get weak. If you do a multi-day fast, I promise you, by the end of that fast, food is the most beautiful thing in the world. But do you know what's even more beautiful? The time you spent with the Lord. Yeah. It's, a, it's just beautiful. It's, a, it's amazing. It teaches you spiritual discipline. God is your Lord, you guys, master. We are his servants. It teaches us to see that in our lives, you guys, there's an intimacy with God that he desires for us to have with him. And a lot of times, getting rid of food or setting aside TV or stopping with the phone and setting no more social media for a little while, man, it, it, it turns the volume down on the world around you so much that you start hearing God in a fresh way and it's such an, a blessing. It's almost, I, I dare say, and I, I forgive me if this is a wrong word, but I, I'm just telling you in my own life, fasting almost becomes addictive in a sense much like spending time in the word becomes addictive, doesn't it? The more you're in it and the more you hear from the Lord, the more you're like, oh, I want more of that. And man, like there's a bunch of us guys and we're sending scripture to each other every day and that gets like addicting to where you're like, man, I can't wait what, to see what God's shown, you know, this guy or what God's shown Steve or what God's shown whoever. And we're getting all this, this scripture and we're reading scripture and then we're sharing that with other people and there's just an ad addiction. I don't know what another word is. And if that's the wrong word, forgive me. I don't know what the right word is, but I just feel like there's something intimate and special about that. And it's the same way with fasting. You just want more of it. You're like, oh God, I want to hear you more. There's an intimacy that's found in fasting. And like I said, it's something that you'll never understand until you do it. And you're not more spiritual or more anything, but you get to commune with God in a very special way. So if you come out of fasting and it puffs your head up, I got to little news flash for you. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's going to humble you. It's going to humble you. It has me every time. Fasting humbles you, you guys. You see just how needy you are. And you go to God to get everything you need. And he meets you. How do you fast? You ready for the answer? Is everyone curious? There's no formula. <laughs> How do you fast? However God tells you to. That's the answer. It could be a day-long fast from food. Could be a month-long fast from social media. Could be a week-long fast from Netflix. Might be a year-long fast from video games. The point is not the length, except as the Holy Spirit directs you. The point is not the thing, food or social media or TV or whatever that is. It's to seek God sacrificially in order to gain some deeper intimacy with him. Yeah. It's to petition the Lord for very specific things. We go to the Lord with very specific things when we fast. Mm -hmm. But I need you to hear this. We're not trying to twist his arm. We're not, guys. We're not God. We're not gonna twist his arm. I don't, you know, when I hear people say like, man, I've got the faith of a mustard seed. I'm gonna move a mountain. No, you will not. Mount Everest will never move unless God wants it to move. I don't care how much faith you have. You can have the faith the size of a boulder. It's not gonna change the fact that if God doesn't want that to move, it's not gonna move. Do you know what it means to have faith of the size of a mustard seed? It means to say, God, I have the faith that your will will be done in my life. And God, I need you to correct my thinking so that my faith is in line with the will that you have for my life and for those around me. If God wants to move the mountain and you have the faith that God wants to do that, it will move. That's what that scripture means. I don't see God moving mountains very much. 
physically. But we see him move mountains all the time spiritually, don't we? People you've been praying for in your family over and over and over again. Maybe two weeks before they pass, they come to the Lord. God moved a mountain. So I would encourage you guys, fast as the Lord leads. I'll tell you guys something that, you know, I'm not saying for any other reason just than to give you guys a clue or give you guys some information is that Grace and I fast multiple times a month and sometimes it's a day and sometimes it's longer and usually it's food. Why? Because I like food a lot (laughs) and I feel the loss of food deep in my soul, (laughs) right? But the last thing I want to tell and say about this idea of fasting is that the Bible makes it clear that when we fast, we don't make a big deal out of it. Flip over with me to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. This is Jesus talking here. He says this. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with this sad, sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You guys, when we fast, we just fast. It's not for everyone else to know. It's not like you need to be coming in and be like, do you know that I'm starving? If you hear my belly growling tonight, just forgive me. I'm in the middle of a wicked long fast, y'all. No, just do your thing. If your belly growls, then let it growl. Who cares? Pray, right? Walk it out, man. Men and women, man up. I don't know how else to say it. Walk. Get a shower. Don't come in in here stinking and you're like, I'm on a 10-day fast, which I was fasting from showering. (laughs) Right? No, just fast, y'all. Like, Just do your thing. But I, I need you to hear this, and I'm not judging anyone here. If you've never fasted, I would just encourage you. If there's something in your heart that you're like, man, Lord, I've been really seeking an answer for this. Maybe it's a besetting sin that you just have in your life that you're like, God, I keep trying to stop gossiping. God, I keep trying to stop looking at porn. God, I keep trying to whatever, right? Man, take that to God and spend a little time in fasting as the Lord leads and in what way the Lord leads. I hope tonight that when you leave here, you don't hear me saying you have to do it with food or you have to do it with this and it has to be this long. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm telling you right now, if anybody, if I hear anybody saying that, I want everyone else to be like, nope, that is not at all what he said. (laughs) You guys, Ezra hasn't even left Babylon yet. And we see just how amazing the blessing is that God's pouring out on him. And the group that's gonna be going. And you guys, the reality is, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this man, Ezra, who was obviously faithful to God and to those around him. And he brought other people. He brought favor to the people of God through his actions, through the way he lived his life. And I think, you guys, as a church, we get to be that. Look at the church in Acts. Man, I'm, I, see, look, I knew I was going to take up all the time. Look at the church in Acts. What does it say about the church in Acts? People were like a little bit kind of like, whoa, what's the deal with these guys meeting on Solomon's portico, Right? But then it also says that daily people were added to the numbers because people were like, whoa, what's your deal? And people were like, man, we love this guy named Jesus. You should come meet him too. 
There's something special about being faithful to God that God uses your life in a special and amazing way. And that's what we see in Ezra. And so I'm asking for you guys that God would help all of us to be faithful in our family and in our friends group and in our workplaces. And you guys, we also see that in spite of all the tremendous blessings and the responsibilities that were poured out in Ezra, it wasn't smooth sailing, was it? And the fact is, you guys, anytime you say to God, I'm going to step out in faith with you, I promise you there will be challenges. I tell everybody that in premarital counseling. It's probably the least encouraging thing you could ever say, but it's what I say every time. I'm like, hey man, now that you guys are choosing to do this correctly and get married, I promise you there's going to be turmoil. Get ready. Like, yay! (laughs) But it's the reality, isn't it? When we step out in God's way, the enemy's not happy about it, and the world around us isn't happy about it, because why? couple reasons. Number one, typically it's bringing conviction into their own heart at times. And secondly, they liked you better when you were just like them, not when you start acting like Jesus. And lastly, you guys, we see Ezra humbling himself and seeking God, not just rushing headlong into the adventure, but starting it off by saying, look, we're going to spend a few days here and pray and fast. And you guys, I pray as a church that we are becoming more and more a church that prays unceasingly. So I want to encourage you, thirst night, Yes, it's a time of worship, but do you know what more importantly it is? It's a time for us to get together and there's a mic up here. And if God gives you a word to come up and speak from his word, or God gives you an encouragement to go speak to somebody, then get off your hind end and be obedient and go, go to the person that God's calling you to, or come up here and get uncomfortable and bless the body by being a church that prays unceasingly, by being a church that says, God, you're more important than my comfort and everything else. And I want to become a church that fasts in humility. Which means that we're not going to be a church that every other church knows they're the fasting church, are we? (laughs) Let's pray. Thanks so much for listening to this message from Great Bay Calvary Church in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our services or need prayer for something going on in your life, come connect with us at greatbaycalvary.com.